We're in Romans chapter 5, and we left off in verse 6. So if you want to turn your Bibles to, to Romans 5, uh, verse 6. How many of you guys found yourself reflecting on the first five verses of Romans a little bit as you went through your week with access to grace and trials? Anybody go back and just kind of reflect there? Good truths, good truths for us. I want to read those five verses to remind us as we prepare going into verse six. So this is verse one of Romans five. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. And perseverance character and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. This is the platform for the rest of the chapter, that the love of God has been poured out upon our hearts. So we've titled tonight's message, Love Poured Out. I think that this is the foundational truth for us as we do endeavor to go through trials, as we endeavor to understand suffering. The key understanding is the love of God and the love of God that's been poured into our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. And in praying that tonight that we would be reminded, refreshed, encouraged by the love of God again. That God's love would be poured out into our hearts afresh. So Paul, who's the author of the book of Romans, he goes on to give in detail what is God's love. And he describes that. So when you're confronted with what you don't understand, and you will be and I will be, what we have to do is rely upon what we do understand, and that's the love of God. And the love of God becomes in focus, in crystal view, when we look at the cross of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we focus on in verse 6. For when we were still without strength and in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. So this paragraph shows us God's demonstration. It's the demonstration of God's love. And that's our first point tonight. We've got three points. It's God's demonstration. It says, for when we were still Without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. So when did God demonstrate his love towards us? He demonstrated it when we were out without strength. The message of the gospel and salvation is not that we were really attractive and so God died for us. Or we had a tremendous amount of strength, so God died for us. The gospel is we were without strength, we were ungodly, and God in his love that he initiated, his unconditional love that he gives to us, died for us. So we were in this place where we were without strength and in due time. So there was a specific time for Christ to die. All of the Old Testament leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It was in due time Christ died for the ungodly. We know this, this is probably a reminder to us, but Jesus chose to love us and die for us when we didn't have a heart for God, when we were ungodly, when we were separated from God, when we were the enemies of God. I want you to think about for just a moment the most ungodly person you know. We all probably know somebody 
in that category, okay? It might be a friend, a neighbor. Some of you are pointing at someone sitting next to you. Uh, But then to think of making the ultimate sacrifice for their ungodliness. Without the hope of repentance or not knowing how they would, would respond, just for the sake of winning their hearts, winning their lives, making the sacrifice for, for their salvation. In a much greater way, that's what God did for us. That's what he's done for all of those that don't know Christ as their Savior. He, he died for us when we were ungodly. This is the demonstration of his love. And verse 7 says, For scarcely for a righteous man one will die, yet perhaps for a good man some would even dare to die. This is absolutely true. I mean, you could take someone who's righteous, who's living a righteous life, someone who's a, a good person, and it would be difficult to find someone to die in their place. God's just wired us for survival. He's wired us with the desire to live. So it's very rare that you would find this. When this does take place, when someone lays down their life for someone else, it makes the news. It gets our attention, but it's rare. You know, scarcely for a righteous man will will one die. Yet for a good man, someone would even dare to die. I think you see this even in getting tested to give up a kidney. You know, it's like, so you have a family member or a friend and both of their kidneys have gone out and you've got two kidneys and you're like, am, am I going to give them one of my kidneys? Am I going to test to see if I'm a match? And no, no, I don't, I don't think so. You know, I don't know. I don't know about that. God gave me two kidneys for a reason, right? You know, go to your driver's license. Like, do you want to be a donor? Let me think about that. I should say yes, but what happens to my eyeballs? Do they just come and that's kind of gross. I'm not sure. Then are they going to try to save me? Or are they just going to, my parts are, are worth more than I am alive? I don't know what I should put here. You know? I've had that conversation with myself on my, on my driver's license. That, that instinct and that desire to, 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 to be alive. It, it's so deep for our, our own selves, but it's even deeper for our children. Now, I'll be honest with you. I love you guys and I care about you guys, but I wouldn't give any of my children for the whole lot of you. <laughs> That's encouraging, isn't it? You know? But if you're a parent, you know the reality of that. They're like, that's my kid. That's my baby. That's my son. That's my, my daughter. And, and the desire to love them and protect them and, and see them grow up in life. And so, so what we're about to read is so deep and it's so rich. It says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is one of the most powerful two words in the Bible, but God. And you can do a search. You can go to Bible Gateway and do a phrase search on those two words, and you'll find it to be extremely encouraging. So we don't find this much in humanity to even die for a righteous person, but God. There's a contrast here with God's love, but God demonstrates his own love. The word demonstrates dictionary definition is clearly shown the existence of truth, something by giving proof or evidence. So it's clearly showing the existence of truth. So God is love. This is who he is, but now he demonstrates it. He shows it. He proves 
his own love to us by sending Christ to die for us while we were yet sinners. I asked you to think of someone that you know that's ungodly. And I want you to think now of an act or a gift that someone gave to you that demonstrated love. Maybe it was when you were a child, maybe it's in adulthood, some sacrifice that someone made, and they demonstrated this kind of love. For me, it was when I was 16, what stands out to me is my mom got a little bit of inheritance from my great aunt Bertha. My mom did a lot for my great aunt Bertha. She's a sweet elderly lady. She didn't have any kids of, of her own, so my mom took care of her a lot and just took her grocery shopping and spent time with her. She lived about 15 miles from us. And great Aunt Bertha in her 90s went home to be with the Lord and she put my mom in her will and my mom got $1,000. You know, and for mom at that time, that was a lot of money raising three kids. My parents chose to send us to Christian school, which pretty much was all the money in the piggy bank. So when we went out to dinner, it was Taco Bell and it was a really, really big deal. And dad was looking at the menu and he was saying, okay, this is what you can get. Okay, I got a coupon for the bean burritos, and you can get three bean burritos, and you're having water. And we're like, woo, we got to go out to eat, you know. So money was really pretty tight. I didn't realize it growing up, but looking back, you kind of you realize it. So for my mom to get this, $1,000 was a really big deal. And she goes, you know what, Eric, I want to buy you a new guitar. I want to buy you a good acoustic guitar. So we went down to the music shop, and she bought me a Taylor guitar made out of real wood. And guess how much it was? $1,000. You know, back at that time, you know, I'm getting old. I'm dating myself a little bit. $1,000 was even more than it is today. So here she had this chance to spend money on herself, do whatever she wanted with it. And she decided, I'm going to buy you this, this guitar. And she demonstrated, she clearly showed the love that she had for me. Of course, she did it in a variety of other ways, but that was a gift that, that I'll always cherish and I'll, I'll always keep. And so you think about some kind of gift like that. You think of some kind of act that someone did, and then think about this act that God did, his own love. This separates God's love from our love, from human love. This is a love that exists inside of God it's referred to as agape love because that's the Greek word that's translated into the English word love. But what I want you to see is not so much the Greek here, but how unique that this kind of love is from God. His own love toward us, towards me, towards you, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Very literally and truly, God loved you while you were at your worst. He loved you. He set his love upon you. He demonstrated his love by proving it, by sending his son to die upon the cross while you wanted nothing to do with God. This truth is what led me to Christ. This truth is what changed and transformed my life. Because growing up in a Christian family, I perceived, just wrongly on my own, uh, that God loved me when I did things right. You know, God loved me when I memorized verses. God loved me when I made good decisions, when I didn't go to bad movies, those kind of things. But the rest of the time, you know, when I messed up, he was just waiting to give me judgment. That was my perception of God. And I really didn't want to have a lot to do with God. And one day God spoke to my heart and said, Eric, while you've wanted nothing to do with me, I've wanted everything to do with you. And it was Romans 5.8. 
And I didn't know it was Romans 5.8 at the time. It wasn't like I was like, oh, God just spoke Romans 5.8 into my heart. But as we read through the power of the Spirit, he poured his love into my heart. And that melted me that while I was so hard-hearted towards God that he wanted everything to do with me, that he died to be in relationship with me. And understanding that love and the demonstration of that love melted and unlocked my heart to want to pursue a relationship with the Lord. If God loved you and set his love upon you when you're at your very worst and didn't want anything to do with God, do you think that he currently loves you tonight? I know we're still a work in progress and we're far from perfect, but would you agree that you're further along than you were before you received Christ as your Savior? And your heart is one for Christ and you love him and you desire to follow him. How much more so does he love you currently? But we get tripped up on this as believers, don't we? We go, well, of course God had grace for me and loved me before I was a Christian. But as soon as I received Christ as my Savior, he, he must expect perfection. And I'm not sure if he loves me tonight. And I know this is an old illustration, but I think that it proves true in this text. So let's say that a gal was longing for Mr. Right in her life. She just desired to be married to a godly man, of course, a somewhat attractive man as well. So here she is waiting and praying, and she hears a knock on the door, and she opens the door, and she can tell it's Mr. Right. There he is. But unfortunately, she has one of those mud masks on her face. It's dark green. It looks a little bit like vomit, and it's right there on, on the face. The hair's doing one of these in the back. It's a Saturday morning, about 10 o'clock, and she's had about a gallon of coffee, and her breath smells like death, <laughs> just absolute death. She's got a bathrobe on that's way too old and slippers that should never be seen in public. And he looks at her, and he just falls in love, head over heels. And he loved her while she was at her worst. Could she trust that she is going to be loved as she continues on that journey? Absolutely. See, God loved you. He loved me while we were at our worst. And church, this is true for a lost and dying world around us. He's in love with this world that we get so offended by. He's in love with these sinners that are fallen short of God's glory just like us. And he demonstrated his love towards them and that Christ died for them while they were still sinners. He paid the price in order to win their hearts so they could repent and, and be saved. It's the amazing love of God. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In verse 9, much more than. So verse 9 builds upon this truth of God demonstrating his love, having now been justified by his blood. Remember, justified means declared righteous. We're declared righteous by his blood. We shall be saved from the wrath through him. You can be confident that you're going to heaven because God demonstrated his love towards you while you were still a sinner. And you trusted in that grace for salvation. So much more than being declared righteous, if you have that position of justification before God, then you can have confidence that you're going to be saved from the wrath to come. There's a certain future of salvation. Jesus taught us 
that you have everlasting life. If you make a reservation, you have a reservation. And you're probably fairly confident in that reservation. And Jesus told us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should speculate about everlasting life. Should have everlasting life. It's something that you know you have based on your faith in Jesus Christ and trusting in that. It's the confidence of knowing that we're saved from the wrath through him. In verse 10, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more than having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So we've seen God's demonstration, number one. Now we see God's reconciliation for when we were enemies. And it's important to see our condition before we knew Christ as our Savior is without Christ in the equation and without faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus is opposed to our actions in his righteousness. We're his enemies. We're at enmity with God. We're at war with God. That's the condition that we were in before we knew Christ as our Savior. But then we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son. Reconciliation means to remove enmity that stands between people and God. Restored fellowship between God and people. Think about it like a bank account. You reconcile your your checking account. There's a debt to be paid on a credit card. It gets reconciled. It gets, gets paid. And we were in debt to God. We were God's enemy. And again, through Jesus Christ, we're reconciled with God. Remember last week, we saw that we have peace with God. We're in right standing with the Lord. In a small way, we've probably all experienced the beauty of reconciliation. There's some brokenness in a relationship. Normally, the brokenness in a relationship happens because there's sin. And that sin creates a wedge. It creates a distance. God works. There's repentance and forgiveness. And that relationship is brought into reconciliation. That relationship is brought into restoration. And it's a joy when it happens. Sometimes it's a long road. Sometimes it never happens. But when it does happen, that's, oh, Lord, thank you that there's peace. We didn't have that with God. We weren't right with God. We weren't in right standing. But when we believed in Christ as our Savior, we were reconciled to God. We had peace with God. Aren't you so thankful that God didn't do justification and reconciliation based on a merit system? Like, you're doing pretty good. So, like, you're partway reconciled with me. But keep it up. You know, you're, you're doing pretty good, so you're maybe like 10% justified, but eventually I'm going to totally declare you righteous. You keep going to that Wednesday night study, and I'm going to declare you righteous. You've got a chance in 2015 to read through the Bible in a year. If you finally do that, you're going to be justified, you know? No, God didn't do that. Based on the grace and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, as soon as you trusted him for salvation, you were justified, you were reconciled. That shows you the depth, the magnitude, the glory, the value of the cross. The sacrifice of Jesus is that grand, is that good, is that sufficient to where we can then be fully reconciled to God. And once again, this builds to this truth of trusting God for our salvation, much more than having been reconciled. So if we currently have peace with God, if we're currently declared righteous, we're justified, we shall be saved by his life. We can be confident as we go through this life that we have a reservation in eternity. 
And we talked about last week that the trials in this life have a way of reorienting us to put our hope in what's eternal. And I find myself a week later going, amen, so be it, that's true. You know, Robert's passing and him going home to be with the Lord, it brings us back to this confidence of salvation. Robert had his reservation made. He has eternal life. We have that reservation made. And as we go through the ups and downs and the trials of life, we can put our eyes, we can fix our eyes on, God, I know I'm justified. I know I'm reconciled. I shall be saved by your life through, through your sacrifice. In some way, shape, or form, if you've gotten your wires crossed on salvation, that somehow salvation is dependent upon your works, you're never going to be certain about your reservation in heaven. But if you know that salvation is by the work of Jesus Christ, you can rest in knowing that you have that reservation. And some say, well, how does that lead to a holy life? I think it leads to a far greater holy life because we respond to salvation instead of trying to earn it or deserve it. Amen? Amen. So verse 11, and not only that, this is like the longest run-on sentence in history, much more and much more, and not only that, And not only that, it's just continuing to build, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom now we received reconciliation. This word rejoicing is to take joy again. It also has the idea of boasting in God. So we boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ that we've received reconciliation. This is taking a deep breath and going, God, thank you that I'm in right standing with you. Thank you that I have peace with you. Not sure how the credit card's going to be January 15th, but I have peace with you. Not certain about the financial picture, but I have peace, peace with you. God, I'm trusting in you. I, I, I'm so thankful for this. God, I'm rejoicing in this. How many times did the Apostle Paul have to rejoice again, take joy again, and his right standing with the Lord? His life wasn't easy, Lots of trials, lots of suffering, and taking joy in our salvation. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Therefore, just as through one man's sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. In the last part of this chapter, from verse 12 to the end, we have a contrast between Adam and Jesus, and how Adam's actions in the Garden of Eden had the fallout of death and sin being passed to all. And Adam is a type, he was foreshadowing Jesus to where Jesus' sacrifice upon the cross, one man's obedience resulted in life. And so these two men are are contrasted here. And first it says in verse 12, just as through one man's sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Once Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, everyone was born with a sinful nature. If you doubt that, just spend time with a toddler for a while. You'll wonder, where did he come up with this? Where did she come up with this? It's the reality of the the sinful nature. Now, when Amber and I had our first daughter, Hannah, and people would see us holding little Hannah, and they go, oh, isn't she such a cute little sinner? We didn't really believe it at first, because when they're like six weeks old, we're like, oh, no, she's not. She's so cute. 
Then you get a little further along in the journey, and you're like, oh, she's still so cute, but they were right, you know? <laughs> and that, that's the reality of it, is after Adam sinned, then everyone was born with a sinful nature. Now, some of you at this point are just going, thanks a lot, Adam. And this is interesting because Eve is not listed as the one who's held responsible for this event, which we go, hmm, how did, how did this happen and how did this take place? Because Eve was tempted and Eve gave in and then she turned to Adam and Adam listened to his wife and there we have it. But who did God hold responsible? Adam. Because Adam was the one that God had placed in charge and it was the lack of his leadership. So that's humbling for us as men when we stop and process the leadership that God has given to us in our homes. So then sin was passed on. In verse 13, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. So there was sin in the world, but it wasn't imputed. The word imputed means reckoned or taken into account. You can't be held accountable unless there is a law. So there was the purpose for the law to hold us accountable for sin. In verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. So from Adam to Moses, Moses gave us the law. He was the law giver. Death still reigned because the consequences of sin is death even without the law. There was the conscience. The conscience was there letting people know that they shouldn't steal, they shouldn't lie, they shouldn't murder and the such. And what we'll find is so first through Adam comes sin, but then also through Adam comes death. And then it says here, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is the type of him to come or who is foreshadowing Jesus Christ. When Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, he said that Adam was the first Adam and Jesus is the last Adam. And so he pulled this all together that how Adam's disobedience resulted in death, Jesus's obedience resulted in life. So this is what Adam did for us. And now in verse 15, we start to see what Jesus Christ has done for us. So this is very similar to Hebrews by learning through contrast. We learn how Jesus is greater than the angels and we value Jesus more. We see how Jesus is greater than Moses and we value Jesus more. And we see this contrast between Adam and through Jesus. And this is really a legal presentation on grace. So what Paul is showing us is this is not the first time where one man affected the whole world. So one man, Adam, all the way back in the Garden of Eden, he affected all the world. He affected all of humanity. And that simply set the stage for Jesus Christ and his obedience to affect all of those who would believe. Now, before you pick on Adam too much, because you might think, man, if I was in the garden, I don't know, I would have made this Adam and Eve type of mistake. I know that you ladies, when you've having children, we're probably saying, I can thank Eve for this one. You know, when we're tilling the ground and working hard, sometimes I'd sure like to talk to Adam about this. It'd sure be nice to do some gardening without weeds and not have to do this, this work. But we have to understand that Adam and Eve were the best that humanity had to offer. 
it would be similar to going to a powerlifting Olympic event and the best that the United States has to offer in that weight class, going up against the Russians, we lose and then foolishly for me to go, you know what, they really should have chosen me for the Olympics. Now, I, I, I think I would have I done better than, than that guy. That's like us going to Adam going, you know what, if I was in that garden, why don't you give me a shot? Hey, I got news for you, gang. We would have all done the same thing, probably quicker, probably faster, probably would have went that direction even, even sooner. So let's look at what Christ has brought in through his obedience. But the free gift is not like the offense, for if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. So Adam brought death and transgression. Jesus brings in grace and the gift of life. So much more the grace of God and the gift of the grace, one man, Jesus Christ. He triumphs over transgression. He triumphs over death. So for us to be reconciled, for us to be justified, for us to be salvation, to receive salvation, it's all through the one man, Jesus Christ, and the grace that's given to us through Christ. In verse 16, and the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense results in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offense resulted in justification. So Adam, he brings condemnation. He brings death. He brings that sentence under the law. But Jesus brings justification to be declared righteous. Verse 17, for if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So Adam, there's the reign of death, and in Jesus Christ, there's the reign of life. You'll notice a phrase here as we go through this, the abundance of grace, the gift that is given to us. The idea in the language is it's overflowing with grace. And I think it's important to understand the theology of grace, because it's not just God going, well, I'm a nice guy. So boys will be boys and girls will be girls. And I really don't feel like holding people accountable. And my image is getting a little tainted out there. People think I'm really into judgment. So I'm just going to kind of let some things go. That's not it at all. The only way that God can be holy and just, but at the same time gracious, was for Jesus Christ to die. And Jesus was punished for all of our transgression. Jesus took the penalty of death. The wages of sin is death. And so because of Jesus, we can be reconciled. Because of Jesus, there can be an abundance of grace. Does that make sense? So it's not this cheap grace or God just extending something without making the payment. He made the full extent of the payment to be able to pour out grace into our lives. The, the abundance of, of grace into our lives. Verse 18, therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in the justification of life. Because Adam's disobedience could result in death and condemnations, Christ's obedience could result in justification. 
Here's the difference, and I hope you realize this, is everybody was born a sinner after Adam bombed in the Garden of Eden, right? But not everybody is justified because Christ died upon the cross. It's only those who trust in Jesus Christ through faith. That's when the blood of Jesus is appropriated to our account. There's some that are called universalists that believe when Christ died upon the cross, then everybody's automatically saved, whether they believe in Christ or they reject Christ. That's a universal salvation. There's churches in town that that teach that. It's becoming a more popular doctrine. And it may be more palatable or a little easier to swallow, but it's not what Jesus taught. So we've got to stick with what Jesus taught. And it does undermine the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Because if you don't have to believe it, then what's the value of it? And so God says, this is the condition in order to receive forgiveness, to receive justification is through faith. Verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many were made righteous. See how Adam is the type, he's foreshadowing So if Adam can bring this consequence into our lives, then Jesus can bring the righteousness into our lives. Adam's disobedience had many effect upon sinners, but Christ's obedience constituted righteousness in our our lives. Verse 20, moreover, the law entered that offense might abound. Isn't this true in every way possible? The law causes offense to abound. One, because it records our failure. So just by that fact, we see an abundance of transgression with the law. But also, by the nature of law, it wants rebellion to conspire in our lives. I don't know of anybody that just really enjoys law and enjoys rules. Maybe I'm a little bit extraordinary than the average person. But if someone really emphatically got up here and said, don't cross this line, do not cross this line, there's just something inside of me that says, I'm going to cross the line because I just want to see what you're going to do when I cross the line. You know, the rules just seem to be meant to be broken apart from, from Jesus Christ. It just, it causes things to abound. It causes transgression to abound. That's what the law does in our lives. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. God's grace triumphed over our sin. Again, we find this grace abounded, grace overflowed. What we discover is that God's grace is greater than any sin and any transgression. And where grace abounds, or where sin abounds, grace abounds much more by the nature of the fact that God forgives us, that Jesus paid the price for us. Now stay tuned, come study chapter 6 with us next week, because we look at the question, the logical question that's asked at the beginning of chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Look at verse 2. Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? I remember being a young child and hearing the gospel, and this is how I interpreted the gospel. Sweet, I get to say one prayer, and then I get to do whatever I want, and it's all going to be forgiven. It's kind of like a blank check. And I would go around telling my friends, have you saved this prayer, and then you can do whatever you want? That was my 
I needed to read Romans chapter 6, right? So that, that's not the, the idea of this. If we receive God's grace and absolute forgiveness, we want to be close to him. We want to live for him. We, we don't want to add to his suffering and put more things upon the cross, but we also need to sit in this truth of God's grace. Sin abounded in our lives. Sin continues to abound in our lives sometimes, unfortunately. But God's grace abounded even more still. And so here's our last point tonight. We've seen God's demonstration. We've seen God's reconciliation. But it's God's reign in verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, so sin is what is on the throne of our lives. Sin is what's calling the shots it reigns in death. It results in death. Even so, grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. How does Jesus rule and reign our hearts, our lives, as he's our Lord? He does it through grace. And there's something that's amazing when you experience grace in your life on an ongoing, continuing basis is it does lead to saying, Jesus, I want you to be the Lord of my life. I want you to reign. And what happens is his reign leads to life instead of death. I want you to turn quickly with me over to Titus chapter 2, and we see this description of God's grace and the impact that it has upon our lives. Timothy, Titus, Titus 2, verse 11. It says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's my suggestion to you. The law could never teach you near as much as grace. Grace will teach you and transform you far more than the law ever will. Rules and regulations never transform the heart, but God's grace does. When you understand where sin abounded, grace abounded more. Jesus loved you, demonstrated his love towards you while you were yet a sinner. He paid the price when we don't deserve it. It causes us to go... God, I want to be close to you. It teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust, to live soberly and righteously and godly in this present age. How many of you are familiar with the play Les Mis? How many of you have read the book or seen a movie or seen a play? Now, for real, how many of you guys have say, you know, I'm familiar with the play? Raise it high so I can see, okay? So how many of you say, I have no idea what you're talking about? Raise your hand, raise it high. So two-thirds of you have, are not familiar with the story. I would recommend the book because some of the, the movies have kind of gone, gone over, all over this. There's an opera of it as well, which I would not recommend, but some of you may enjoy. It's like, gag me. You're like, oh, I'm not liking that. But I do enjoy, enjoy the book. That's a very large book, and I've not read the book. I've listened to the audio book, which was awesome. So all that is set aside... Here's the crux of the story, and it's a fiction story, but it's all based on grace. You've got this man who stole, and because he stole, he was put into 
this prison camp where he worked under hard, hard labor. And he's supposed to serve out a life sentence. So he escapes from this prison and he's on the run and he goes into a priest's home and he decides to steal these uh, expensive uh, candle holders, candelabras uh, made, made out, out of gold. So he steals them and he runs off into the night and he's arrested and brought back to the priest and the, the, the soldiers and the police officers are saying, you know, was this man in your house? And did, did he steal these things? And this is what the priest does in the story. He says, no, I gave them to him. And he shows this amazing act of, of grace. And the story then goes to go on to express how this life's man was transformed by grace. And it's, it's a great example of the power of grace. And it's just a short picture of what God has done for us and the grace that he gives to us. So I want us to apply these truths in our hearts and our lives tonight in this way. God died for you while you were yet a sinner. I want you to to do this and make it personal. God died for me while I was yet a sinner. Go ahead and picture yourself with the mud on your face and, you know, a bad hair day and coffee breath and boogers coming out of your nose and all that stuff. Amen. Amen. No amens to that one. That happens to me, but that's another story. (laughs) In a spiritual sense, picture it. In our sin, our unloveliness, the part of us that we can't stand about ourselves that annoys other people and offends God. Christ died for me while I was yet a sinner. God reconciled me while I was his enemy. While I was his enemy, God reconciled me by by his blood. God reigns in my life through grace. God reigns in my life through grace. He takes the throne of my life and the proper place in my life because of grace. Far more than giving me some golden candle holders, he's given his son that amazing gift. And so we rejoice in that tonight. As we come to the communion table, we take joy in our salvation. God, you would love me this way. While I was a sinner, you reconciled me unto yourself. You give me grace. Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Look at Christ, look at his sacrifice and receive that grace afresh in your life. And this is what I find is then the gospel becomes good news again. (laughs) And we're rejoicing in that good news and we're willing to share with others, God loves you. I know your heart's hard to him, but he loves you and he paid the price for you and he desires to forgive you. And look into eternity. Look into salvation. Go, Lord, I'm so thankful that my reservation's with you. And if you don't have that reservation with the Lord in eternal life, tonight, would you consider putting your faith in Jesus Christ? You can't save yourself. You can't do good works. But you can repent, turn away from your sin, and trust Jesus at his offer to believe in your heart that he's God, that he died for your sins and rose again. Say, Jesus, would you forgive me? I willingly receive by faith the price that you've paid. And guess what? The promise of God is he justifies you. He reconciles you. You have peace with God. You have an eternal reservation with him. But there's no other way. 
There's no other name by which men and women are saved. And as we come to communion, we'll be available here on the sides. And you come let us know, I'm ready to receive Christ as my Savior. I know December is a very difficult month in a lot of ways, from the busyness, from the stress, but also from loneliness and from broken families and financial hardships. And I'm sure that some of you are just hanging on by your bootstraps. You're saying, man, does anybody see how much I'm hurting and I'm suffering? Absolutely. The Lord sees and come and receive prayer. There's going to be a prayer team available and come down. That's why we're here. We'd love to pray with you and ask that the Lord would comfort you and and minister to you. Suicide is the highest this month. It's the highest in the month of December. I'm sure that there's some of you tonight that are contemplating taking your life. It's not something that we're immune to inside of the church and the pain's so much and you're wondering if it's worth it. It's worth it. God has a future and a hope for you. And don't just head out tonight without receiving God's comfort and allowing someone to pray with you. So if you need to receive Christ or need prayer, please come and and receive prayer. Let's stand together and prepare hearts for communion. Father, we thank you for your love that was demonstrated so clearly to us on Calvary. Father, thank you for loving me while I'm at my worst reconciling me unto yourself. Thank you that you're the last Adam. Through your obedience in the Garden of Gethsemane, we receive grace. May your grace be afresh to us tonight. May we understand the height and the depth and the width of your love. Through the power of your spirit, would you minister your love to us tonight? May we all go away knowing that we're loved by you. Would you minister to each heart, to those that need to receive you, to those that need comfort and grace and strength. We draw near to you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.